Hello, I'm Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mel Plus. I'm joined this week and every week by my friend and coast host. Coast host? Coast host? Coast host. Coast hoster. Co-host, Imogen Edwards-Jones. Imogen, darling, it's half term. How are your children? Oh, God. Oh, killing each other. (laughs) Yours? I can't believe it. Actually, mine is still alive. It's because I've kept them apart. One of mine has been sent to to stay with his father. Good. So he phoned me yesterday night at about one o'clock in the morning trying to make a fry up and a walk. Which was quite entertaining. <laughs> I had to explain to him how to turn the gas on. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> so that took a while. Yes. And then he did some bacon in a wok and oh, an good. egg in a wok. And mm. then he was very distressed because his father doesn't have a microwave. Oh. So he had to actually heat his baked beans in a pan, which I don't think he's ever done. That's hilarious. It's very good. It's been a learning curve for him. That's hilarious. Uh, yes. And my daughter's here because they're all on strike. They're all on strike, so obviously. Yes. So no one's doing, yes. No, fair enough. <laughs> so she's watching Love Island at home yeah, instead just, of yeah, no. at, at university. Exactly. Yes. That's brilliant. I have been quite entertained by South Park. Oh, yes. South Park. Yes. I did actually. Who have done, who have done Meghan and Harry. They've finally. done Meghan and Harry. And it's, it's just spot on. And it's a really short little sketch, but it's very funny. They're so sharp, aren't they? <laughs> so naughty. Every single thing. <laughs> In it is, as the French would say, a point. A point. It's a point. Every single a thing is properly giggle making. It's really And funny. there's also more. If you look on the TikToks, there's more bits of They're them so being clever. rude about Harry and Meghan. Yeah. It's very funny. Delicious is what I was Delicious. saying. They're just so naughty. I think they must have more <laughs> <snorted>. fun. <laughs> they must have more fun at work than any other. More fun, yeah. And also they're, they're Canadians. Any other group of it's people always, ever. It's always a surprise to me that they're Canadians. I don't know if they're even allowed to carry on. <laughs> anyway, um, enough laughter. Sorry, this is And because we're serious. doing a serious yes. podcast are, this yes. week. This week we're joined by Hannah Barnes, Newsnight's investigations producer. Hannah has written a brilliant book titled Time to Think, The Inside Story of the Collapse of the Tavistock's Gender Service for Children. That's quite a mouthful. The, <laughs> the book aims to reveal the truth about the NHS Gender Service for Children, which has been plagued with headlines and controversy. So this week we've had... Nicola Sturgeon resigning mm. over her gender identification bill. Was that the reason? Well, it was one of the reasons. Right, okay. I mean, there were yeah. other reasons too. Yeah. Also, sort of so quite a lot of missing money in the SNP. Oh, okay, right. Um, okay. But anyway. Yes. But this is a topic that has been rumbling around for quite a long time. So, Hannah, can you just tell us how you came to it in the first place? I first stumbled across it while on maternity leave with my first child, so 2017, but mm. didn't really engage. You know, it was just, mm. there were a few articles in the papers and it wasn't really until early 2019 when Dr David Bell's report was leaked to Mm. the Sunday Times that it sort of sparked my interest. Mm. What's in his report just before you? Uh, Well, what's in his report is that so so 10 members of staff from the Gender Identity Development Service, JIDS, went to him with their concerns about how it was running. So they were concerned that it wasn't providing a safe service to all of the young people and Mm. children that it was seeing, that some people being referred for physical interventions too quickly, that many had complex other difficulties that they were contending with at the same time that were being overlooked because the numbers were just too great. They were seeing people too quickly. There was a massive explosion, wasn't there? Absolutely massive explosion. I mean, for years and years and years, they'd sort of toddled along with, Mm. I mean, I don't know how many. In 2009-10, that financial year, they had 97 referrals. Okay, Mm. so very few. Mm. And then all of a sudden it sort of exploded, Mm. which sort of coincided with the whole trans issue becoming much more prevalent in the sort of mm. general media and on social media. Mm. And it went from what, sort of 100 to... So it went to 100 to nearly 1,500 by 2015. Yeah. 
And it's gone from boys to girls. Yeah, that's right. So historically... Which is fascinating as well. Yeah, yeah, so historically it was a small number of... There were always girls, but, but yeah, the yeah. majority were boys who from childhood had had that sense of gender incongruence. Yeah. Mm. And for some that would persist and they would become trans adults, but many of them, the majority would grow up to be gay, actually. Yeah. Mm. And then coinciding with the absolute explosion in the in the overall numbers was a shift in the sex ratio. So mm. you went from... So the girls equaled the number of boys for the first time around 2011. Mm. And then again, by that 2015 time, it had completely reversed and it was Gosh. two-thirds girls. And not only was it girls and not boys, these girls, they didn't have lifelong gender incongruence. It mm. started... Mm. At puberty. Yeah, or mm. the onset of puberty or in adolescence. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So going back, so you... So, so you No, no, no. It's, it's, <laughs> well, no, because I didn't know what was in the report. Such, that's the all. thing about this is it's such a sort of... Complex issue. Yes, that, you yeah. know, one tends to kind of get go off on tangents. Yes. But just going back to the Bell report. So yeah, the Bell, so yeah, the Bell... saw that and, you know, as a journalist, it just prompted questions in my mm. mind. You it know, didn't what... sit well. Thought, well, mm. I, I didn't know one way or the other. I mm. just thought, well, what's going on? Mm. And at that point in time, the broadcast media certainly wasn't looking at this at all. And really not, not many of the papers were either. No. So at Newsnight... Together with my former colleague, Deborah Cohen, who was our health correspondent at the time, we decided that, you know, we would shine a light on something that wasn't getting any attention mm. and take an evidence-based approach, a sort of almost scientific approach. So we never questioned the right of people to transition nor people's identities. Mm. We were asking the question, are all of these young people getting the care that they mm. yeah. should? And, and is there a And, of... you know, we were supported massively by our editor, Esme Wren, at the yeah. time. I mean, I think... No one has ever really questioned the right of people who need no. to transition or want mm. to transition to transition. Mm. I certainly have never done that. Mm. And genuinely, honestly, I can't imagine anything worse. As someone who's often suffered from body dysmorphia as in, mm. you know, absolutely loathing the sight of myself in the mirror. Um, no, seriously. I, mean, <laughs> I know and, you have. Uh, I, know you I, can, I, I have a tiny inkling of what it must feel mm. to, to really hate who Being you are and just feel you were, that yeah. you're not comfortable in your body. So I don't think... I think the thing is that there's a moment and there has been a moment where the whole thing has sort of become more than just that. It's become a campaign. It's become an ideological thing. And one of the things that I'm interested in is the sort of influence of organisations like mermaids and mm. a gender identity. Because, you know, in the course of your investigation, you found that they had had quite a lot of input into all of this. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think so... Absolutely. Many clinicians brought up mermaids and gendered intelligence and gyres. And, and I think each of those groups have been more or less influential at different points of time. So quite early on with JIDS, before puberty blockers were available at mm. younger ages, gyres was very influential and, and mermaids was around that time as well. Mermaids continued in that. And then in more recent years, it's been gendered intelligence. Mm. So clinicians certainly felt them to be very present in the work of the service. And there's one Leeds clinician who says, you know, we were answering to mermaids. Mm. Now, obviously, JIDs deny that and they say they didn't influence clinical decisions. But we do know, like, there's documents that show that board-level managers at the Tavistock were, you know, in email contact with, you know, the then head of mermaids, Susie Green, saying... Mm. We, sh we should liaise over content of our websites. And, and we mean, know that Susie Green requested that, 
young people's clinicians be changed if they weren't getting the mm. response that they wanted. Yeah. You know, there are people on the record saying that. So they were influential, but I think it's important to say they didn't get everything they wanted, by all means. But wasn't, wasn't the Tavistock originally set up as a sort of talking therapy shop? It wasn't yeah, it's ever... got a, it's, it has a world-renowned reputation yeah, yeah. for being so, leaders in talking therapy. So when did it start therapy? suddenly thinking that they stopped talking and started prescribing? Because that's the... Well, that's well the, the Tavistock didn't. I think right. this is really important. And, right. and people okay. who are still at the Tavistock get really upset about this. Mm. So the Tavistock okay. Trust still exists, or the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust still exists, and it provides talking therapies for mm. lots of different you know, to lots of different patients and they have a CAM service. Mm. And JIDS was just one part of that. Right. And actually, tracing it back, JIDS was always a bit of an outsider in the trust. And I think this was part of the problem, actually, as well. But when it first moved there in 1994, it was at the Portman Clinic originally. And and the Portman didn't want them there. Mm. Because even though the physical interventions were quite rare then and you had to be 16, the very idea that you would treat what they saw as a, you know, a mental uh, illness. Mm. And I know, you know, I'm Condition, not saying that it is, yeah. but yeah. with drugs was mm. completely mm. anathema to them. You know, right. that, that, that isn't how they operated. It was to do with talking. So there was always that tension. And I think that only grew as time went mm. on and, you know, the age at which young people could be mm. referred mm. dropped. So it's the Tavistock remained its talking right. tradition. And it had this service which grew and grew and grew and became an ever- Mm. more important part of it, mm. which didn't do that. But what's so interesting and what seems to be the major problem here is that you're talking about children quite young, as young as 10, I think, mm. in some cases. Mm. And I think that what happened was there was this sort of slightly sort of rainbows and unicorn idea that you could pause their development so that if they presented with what you thought were was gender dysmorphia, mm. That you could pause their development, their pu- mm, pubile, with the, with puberty, your I don't know puberty. what the word, but you could pause puberty yeah. so that if you were a boy who thought you might want to be a girl, then yeah. you didn't have end up with a beard and yeah. an Adam's apple, which is annoying, I think, if you want to transition. Mm. And the idea that the sort of fantasy that you could pause it, but in fact, they were using these drugs that were quite, I mean, they're quite experimental, aren't they, really? And well, they were used to treat a different condition. So... They were used to chemically castrate people, weren't they? They were. I mean, they're predominantly I mean, used to treat prostate cancer. But, but yeah. they were licensed for use in children for who started puberty really early, mm, so right. precocious puberty. But nobody really knew what the outcome would be at the end of it all. Well, they didn't because in precocious puberty, they're used and then you come off them. Right. And then you go through puberty. Right. Um, okay. because, they, because they do do what they say on the tent. They, they do pause your puberty. But they're right. the same drugs but, that they used on Alan Turing, weren't they, that to stop him from allegedly trying to stop him from being gay. I mean, they're the same sort of group of chemicals. Yeah. And this will lead to the other conversation that I want to have to do, which is about the sort of anti-gay sentiment that was happening. Because a lot of the, you know, the idea that these children were actually gay, not trans, and that if you're a gay child, then the idea was that instead of being gay, you'd just become the other sex. And then that would mean that you weren't gay anymore. It's like a sort of weird form of gay conversion <laughs> therapy. I mean, t- talk us through that a little bit. Do you want me to go back to the puberty? Yeah, go back. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean... The, Sorry. The, I'm so the idea, I want to no, ask no, well, about the, the idea that... I mean, the, the theory was, yeah, that you administer the blocker and by pausing the body's development, you could take away the distress and that mm. would give you time, time to Time to chat. Time, time to, to think, think, yeah. Right, OK. Title of the book. But... Yeah. You know, and that actually made sense. In theory, it mm. makes perfect sense. Well, it does make sense to me. I mean, I can yeah. see the appeal of it. Exactly. Actually. But but what happened was, but that was just, you know, really, that was a hypothesis. Mm. And from what we can see, and all the studies are really not great, but 
it appears that that is not how they work mm. because you know as as one of the clinicians puts it there what are the odds of people being young people in particular being given time to think and them all thinking exactly the same way mm. because mm. what they found is that <laughs> they hardly anybody stops them they all progress on to onto into cross-sex yeah, hormones yeah. or gender affirming hormones whatever language you want to use so the idea made sense and i think this is why in the early years after they had reduced the age limit as you know general practice people weren't they were concerned but they were like well that's okay because mm. so once you got on the train you could never get off it yeah but they didn't know that to start right. with it was only when the data started coming through yeah i mean you can see that there were good intentions there at the beginning yeah, as well, yeah. They were. yes and I, and I think yeah and i think but i'm never saying that you know actually everybody we can People can disagree about the best ways to do it, but I, I think they were well-intentioned, mm. well-meaning mm. professionals who wanted to help this group of young people. Mm. It was disagreement on how you did it. But, mm. Yeah, but they did this without really any data. And then when they did get data back that suggested they weren't working in the way they had thought, they weren't necessarily offering this time to think. And also they were applying it to a group of young people for whom the existing limited evidence base didn't actually apply. Mm. They then didn't change direction. No, exactly. So is it, can I just ask you, the drugs that they're using, because I have a very wise American friend who always says, follow the money. Who's supplying these drugs and how expensive are they? And uh, I've, I've seen no evidence of big pharma or anything like right, that here okay. in the UK. Because I mean, she it's, thinks it's in compl- America, it's yeah, huge. Yeah, it's completely different The market is huge in America. Well, also, presumably, the thing is that presumably the market leads to more expensive treatments and interventions, mm. doesn't it? Because if you're going down a pathway of transitioning, then you're going to have probably you, where well, you're going to take the hormones and then you're going to have probably yeah. some sort of surgery or maybe maybe mm. more surgeries. So, so you can see that there is a sort of money thing, but you don't see any connection. Well, you didn't really see any connection. Well, not really. I mean, because we have the NHS. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so yeah. it's, so it's yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. I, I haven't children seen... We're all on the NHS, so... Yeah, yeah, so it didn't anyway. really... Right. But what, I, what I'm also interested in... I mean, I'd like to talk about the gay thing because I do think that is quite pernicious mm. and sort of weird and sort of slightly creepy that you would basically say to a gay child, no, no, you're not gay, you're just the wrong sex. Yeah. That is quite strange and homophobic. But also I'd like to talk about the timing of all this because... I think, from my reading and research and stuff, I think that social media has played a huge role in this. Mm. I think that if GIDS had existed and there had been no social media and no TikToks of people doing transitioning and saying how fabulous it is and all this kind of stuff, and if being trans hadn't become such a viral thing on the internet, then I don't think you would have had this sudden surge in applicants. I think a lot of what's happened is children being influenced by what they see on the internet. Mm. And children are very easily swayed by all sorts of things. I mean, we've all, we've all got children. We yeah. all know. Yeah. I mean, that one one day it's absolutely got to be this and then the next day it's absolutely mm. got to be that. And they're, at, they're very convinced that what they're doing at that moment of time is absolutely the thing. And then literally the next day they've completely mm. forgotten about it. You know, you, you know how it works with children. Mm. And the internet is a terrible thing for children's brains because what it, it sort of encourages that natural tendency anyway. And so... I wonder how much of this would have happened had it not been. I mean, I think one of the great tragedies of this whole story is that a service that was designed to help people who genuinely needed it, i.e. a small minority of people who are genuinely transgender, is now going to be closed down because they're going to close kids next month, I think, isn't it? Well, it's not, they're not ready. I mean, they're the, not ready, the, the, new, the new services aren't ready, so exactly. we don't know when that will So they, actually, they're but. losing out, those people. And it's all because of a moment of I, what I consider to be sort of madness, basically. Do you think? I mean, I, mean, I, I don't. I, I, I think you know, this is 
Sorry to say, it's just more complicated than one factor. I mean, there are certainly people I've spoken to. There's a someone's experience called Harriet in the book, mm. who for her, she says for sure, like there was a social influence element. Mm. You know, mm. she was at an all girls school. It was becoming, you know, somewhat trendy. She says to be either trans or non-binary. Yeah, she'd had a same-sex relationship and been made to feel really ashamed about that. She was having mental health difficulties, and you know, and she was really heavy social media user. Yeah. So I think it was all those things, for her anyway, she said it was all those things together and she would see things on Tumblr and she would say, well, this is a way to jump ship and be happier. Mm -hmm. And for a while she was much happier. Mm. It seemed an answer to Mm. all those things, you know, questions about her sexuality and her mental health and she, you know, other things. So, but I don't, I don't think it can be just pinned on. No, but I think media. it's a fact. I think, I think it's, it's an factor. element for some people for sure. Mm, like mm. I've spoken to some. Of yeah, them. I mean, yeah. my my daughter's an all girls school, and there are quite a few girls who to self identify as they them, yeah. and she's noticed that very differently from she had gone to a mixed school beforehand, yeah. Yeah. and there was very few they them. Yeah. So in fact, actually none. Yeah, and so at this all girls school that she is now, there are quite a few of them in her school. And, you know, you see massive celebrities, sort of huge TikTok stars, mm. you know, and makes it look very easy yeah. and makes it look rather glamorous and rather fabulous. And also makes and you, it's, you know, a lot more interesting yeah, as a person. Exactly. I think if and you have, t- I mean, from what I can see with her friends, some of them are, it's a way of being, being special, being special mm. in a world where being special, where it's quite hard to be special. Yeah. yeah. And also there was that sort of tomboy phase that I certainly went through in the 70s. Mm. What's odd about this whole thing is there's no accounting for phases. No, exactly. So, I, you know, we all go through phases. Yeah. I, went through a, I went through a mild lesbian phase yes. when I was about eight when I was madly in love with, I can't remember what she was called, Alice or something. Yeah. And we spent hours together in the tent in our garden, much to my parents' absolute horror. <laughs> and, you know, and then I decided that I never wanted to, you know, be a girl. And I, But, you know, I... You don't necessarily need to fixate on any. Those are just experimenting mm. phases. Yeah. They're normal. It's people just sort of trying things on for size and seeing, well, you know, how do I feel mm. about this? How do I feel about that? And what I think is so tragic about this whole story is that, I mean, I wrote about your book this week and mm. I talked about Kira Bell, who I think is an extraordinary character, mm. who was part of this and who did become male and who now says I wasn't I wasn't trans I was just very mentally ill and I was just yes. in a bad place and I happened upon this I was sort of funneled in this direction and I sort of jumped on the bandwagon and now I'm whatever it is she's 23 or 24 and she's done she's had a double mastectomy she's had all sorts of irreversible things and now she's sort of stuck in a kind of well, hinterland like in the book is yeah. a similar story and that you know she said I'd like to know why two years of my life where I was struggling it was taken as gospel for that would be the way I would be forever when there was so much else going on and and for her so much that was going on that wasn't explored that looking back seems pretty obvious yeah I mean she's actually I spoke with her recently and she's in a really good place so that's good that's really great but you know so I I mean I don't disagree with you but I I think it's much more complicated than Mm. and I think it will be different for different people you know and I think this is one of the points that clinicians who were so concerned made that just as there were different ways into someone's gender-related distress, that they were just saying there's got to be different ways out of it of as course. well. Yeah, and yeah. so for some Absolutely. that will be transitioning, yeah. but not for all. But I mean, ultimately what this comes down to is a situation where people, clinicians particularly, you know, professional people, felt unable really to say what they thought was going on and were worried about the reaction. And again, this is a huge 
other factor in all of this is the fact that if anybody says, actually, hang on, is this really mm. what we should be doing? Then within seconds, you're being shouted at by, you know, well, that is true. lots of people. Yes, that's yeah. quite brave of you to write such a hot yeah. potato. I, well, mean, no, I mean, I think they were brave for speaking to me. I mean, true. But, you know, I... I but this is what one can... I mean, this is the thing. Like, the word gender has muddied the waters here mm -hmm. because actually what these clinicians... Their concerns were clinical concerns. Mm. And were they raised in a different clinical setting, you wouldn't be saying, oh, yes, you're so questioning they, the patients. Yes. They weren't. They were questioning the care being yes. offered to those patients. And I think one puts it that there was this... Almost you mentioned the word gender and it's a cloak of mystery and everyone assumes that it's so special and therefore you don't ask questions about it. And that's what happened here, really. Yeah. But the normal oversight that there should have been of this service yeah. from NHS England mm, and yeah. from regulators. Just weren't there. Just wasn't there. Is I mean, it because we were too scared to ask the questions, do you think, or is it because it was too sensitive? Well, I think the timing of it is very important. I mean, the thing is, if you presented with a child with bulimia, for example, a clinician would never say, well, no, no, we need to embrace your bulimia and yeah. we need to make you better at being bulimic. Yes. You know, it's whether... and this is well, the, it depends how you view exactly. what's going this on, is doesn't the, it? This mm. is the thing here. It's a question of definition. Mm. Do you think that a child that presents with gender dysmorphia has got mental issues or do you think that they are in the mm. wrong body? And that's the distinction, yeah. isn't it? That's the difficulty. Um, yeah, and, and I think there's no agreement on that. Yeah. And yeah. That, that was the problem. And unless you... You can't, there is no, you know, I think it's wrong to assume there's clinical consensus because there really isn't no. across gender clinics across Europe and, you know, in the States now as well. You know, if you can't agree on what it is, it's being treated, and I use that in the very loosest sense mm. of the word and not to pathologise, then, you know, there's no agreement on that. So therefore, there's no agreement on how the best way to treat it is and mm. what and how you measure mm. that. Mm. And so, yeah. In, in your research, did any of the patients that you spoke to have a one similar thing in all of their lives or was there one thing that you could say pinpoint and say this is where it stems from this is where the stress happens were they all because you said a lot of them had eating disorders or uh, well, that uh, one did I mean no I think they were they were all quite different I mean right. no I think there were different ways into it I mean some had had very you know quite traumatic childhoods mm. but, but are now happily trans adults and mm. you know there's an, another study in there who still identifies as trans, actually, and, and actually had lifelong gender incongruence, but for whom the blocker just was awful. Mm. You know, they were on the blocker from the age of 12 to 16 and were really, really unwell. And they still identify, he still identifies as trans, and mm. but he's not on testosterone and he presents as male, but he's mm. like, that's the worst thing I ever did. So I, th I think this is what the other the thing. Effect? It's going to be a different pathway what for everybody. What were the effects? What, 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 what well, he they... broke four bones. Oh, my goodness. He what, because... Well, because your, bone, the, your accrual of bone density... Um, happens at that age, I guess. Yeah, and like you, you've paused so it. Basically, so... he's got osteoporosis. Well, no, I mean, once you reintroduce thing. your sex hormones, right. it starts to grow again. But what we don't know is that, you know, he na he's now not on any hormones, so his oestrogen is now kicked back in but right. um but even now at the age of 19 he doesn't have regular periods still right so this idea when used to treat gender dysphoria or gender distress that blockers are fully reversible we really just don't know because mm. so few people come off and what's extraordinary in jacob's case is that he did come off after a really long time and there's been absolutely no follow-up no one is collecting the data on how he's no, no one's checking no him out. no one's been in touch with him since he left there. They've, wow. just, they've just abandoned him basically <laughs> wow that's terrible because he's 19 yeah and he's going oh. to live for at least another 
His physical health is much better now. Is mm. it? But he's, he still feels that he's behind his peers developmentally. Right. Is it down to a group of, a sort of small group of people who've made these apparently sort of executive decisions in the dark? I mean, how many people could you pinpoint this protocol on? I think it's much bigger than that. Oh, okay. I think there's been an abject failure of leadership at every single level. Yeah. Like, you know, in JIDS, and it was found to be not very well disorganised as well. Yes, very so, disorganised, you know, th- those, bad those, keeping. Those people who have led the service, you know, have to take responsibility for this, the decisions they did well, and didn't make, but mm. also an absolute failure of leadership in the wider Tavistock Trust that did not support staff who were raising very serious mm. concerns, mm. failure of leadership in the NHS mm. for not, overseeing this service why did they not insist on seeing data why why did they think it was sensible to staff it with an increasing number of junior mm. relatively inexperienced staff when they knew that the young people presenting were very complex mm. why did they not act in 2018 when they saw Dr David Bell's report you know quite and and and, and a failure from wider society and you know but the media in there as well so yes. i mean it's tempting to blame individuals but i just think this do you think they were sort so of many. overwhelmed by the numbers? I mean, do yes. you think? Do you, I mean, before the sort of surge in numbers, were they actually doing quite a good job? Do you think? I mean, have you have you looked There's at that? There's definitely people that yeah. they've helped, and even mm. when it was at its busiest, there was there was good work, mm. and and there is good work now. I'm sure, mm. I'm sure of it. But, all, but all, those, all those services are overwhelmed, aren't they? You know, the CAM service, well, I mean, all the eating disorder well, services. CAM's being overwhelmed is part of the problem here. Yes, too. and that is yeah. not Jids's fault. Jids, yeah. you know, was commissioned to work with the gender-related distress. Mm. And the idea was that other services would deal more holistically with other issues that those young people had, and they didn't, frankly. No. And that's yeah. austerity Britain, that's a <laughs> yes. lack of... But yes. the other... But, the, but what, I, what, I want, what I'm interested in knowing is how much... The children who were referred to GIDS, how did they first present? Because you said earlier on that a lot of them actually... There was a sort of change in the sort of patient profile from mm. a few children who were obviously genuinely quite trans children mm. to a lot of children who were who hadn't at any point prior to that said that they were trans and then suddenly had, had sort of arrived there. How did they get there? Is it the case that psychologists and clinicians and stuff had sort of attached themselves to this idea of trans as a solution to mm. other mental issues? So, you know, were, were they actually autistic? Were they depressed? And was mm. it sort of, there seems to be a bit of a muddying of that water, of those waters. What, what, what boxes did you have to tick in order mm, to get yeah. there, basically? Well, I think it was always the case that the young people were quite complicated. I mean, mm. they did an audit, it was published in 2002, of the first sort of 124 people that had been seen at the service, so mm. from 1989 to about 2000. And all those young people presenting had gender difficulties, mm. but only a fraction would go on to transition. So it, that was always the case. Mm. So, you know, gender incongruence or diversity, whatever language you want to use in childhood, is a thing. But it was just what oh, happened yeah, after. I think it definitely oh, yeah, yeah, no, I wasn't yeah, suggesting. Yeah. But, yeah. but so, and those young people always had other yeah. problems alongside. And but, you had, know, why would, why would one child end up there and not, yes. you know, so, so, you know, me, my seven-year-old self in the tent with the girl yeah. and, you know, wanting to be a boy for about six months, which yeah. I very much wanted to be. Why would I not, I didn't end, I wouldn't have ended up in a well, place you, like you that. You need a referral. You, so I mean, how, yeah. where are these referrals coming from? Well, yeah. why they was, can come from, well, before it was nationally commissioned, I'm not 100% clear on the referral criteria actually, right. but... Um, from 2009, when it became centrally commissioned, GPs could refer, CAMs could refer, schools could refer, 
certainly around 2013, schools could um, school. social well, workers, and then and, and then and then and then sort of voluntary groups could as well. So mermaids could refer. Well, that's what I'm saying. Mm. So, I but think, I don't think I that think that didn't in in terms of the absolute numbers. I mean. The NHS has said going forward that they won't be able to. So only yeah. NHS professionals and, mm. and CAMs can when these new services are up and running. But really, in absolute numbers, the, the voluntary groups yeah. didn't make a huge difference. Well, where, and, and that had been the case. I mean, there, there, it has been said that that changed in 2016, but I'm not... But like you know, schools remember, could refer But when that. my daughter was at school, she's not at school anymore, when she was at school and I don't know, in her lower GCSE mm. year, there was a trans person who came to give a talk. Mm. So, you know, this person came to the school and they explained how it, you know, what it felt like, what it meant and how, and how you could go about yeah. doing this if you wanted to. Now, you could argue that if that presentation had never happened, then those kids in that school would not have known that being trans they, they was They wouldn't have been suggested to Do you know what I mean? I think yeah. there's been a lot of suggestiveness going on mm. here, partly because of the sort of activism of various groups who are in mm. schools and are in institutions and who are putting this idea into people's heads that you might not be gay, you might be trans and or whatever, or that, you know, you don't I necessarily don't think it's as blatant to... as that. Mm. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm asking you because you know more about it than no, I do, I but mean, it seems to me that there's... I, I, do, I mean, I do remember my daughter coming home from that thing and being sort of confused by it because, mm. you know, until then it had never really occurred to her that, you know, she wouldn't be, she wasn't living in the right body. What's interesting as well is that it's many more girls now are presenting than boys mm. and whether girls are more vulnerable during puberty because it's quite frightening to become a woman. Well, girls suffer more from things like anorexia and bulimia yeah. and eating disorders and body dysmorphia and all of those things that you could argue that, this might be an extension of, mm. you know, they yeah, hate I mean, themselves in a way. That, yeah. I mean, I think I mean, that's I think, quite an interesting but statistic I also think, that's you know, happened. I, I also think I can remember when I was going through puberty, I found the attention from men exactly. really distressing. Yeah. Suddenly you'd, you know, you'd gone from being someone who was just a little kid and just invisible and nobody mm. cared about to being something that men would look at and in try and touch yeah. the whole time. Mm. I mean, I can remember a friend of my father's actually touching my breast and being so mortified and upset mm. and embarrassed and humiliated and not knowing what to do. And I think I was about 13 or 14. Mm. I think all these things um, you mentioned are part of it. And I don't, again, you know, there's a really good paper actually by two former GID clinicians who sort of discussed this because mm. we, don't, we don't know the, the answer but you know yeah. they point out that all of those things you've mentioned mm. that girls particularly have historically I suppose expressed distress through their bodies mm. that they speak of like the pornification of Absolutely, society yeah. and, and yeah. unwanted sexual attention and, stuff, yeah. and I think it is difficult being a teenage girl now. Mm. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, as one of the governors of the Tavistock actually says in the book, who's, you know, got teenage children, she said, well, you know, what, what's it, she poses the question, what's it like being a teenage girl having your first sexual experiences with, not exclusively, but with teenage boys who have access to quite oh, hard gosh, pornography? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then what's it like being a teenage boy? Having we know that, that we know there's so much about this yeah. and we know about strangulation and all of this mm, sort of stuff. Mm. But the thing is, is, you know, anorexia can sometimes be a way of trying to reduce yourself and trying to make yourself yeah, disappear less, so yes. that you are less visible. And also and when it, you manage to stop your periods through, uh, exactly. through anorexia, that's that's a goal. to That's a, a, that's that's a goal, a goal for, for, because yeah, you're you suddenly no for, longer. Yeah. And I think there's the, it's been particularly problematic for women in that respect for girls in that respect mm. because well that's what's interesting is that that, that male female ratio has changed so dramatically mm. in this mm. in this clinic Hannah Don't what's the you. most extraordinary thing that you found while you were researching your book what did you think made you sit back and think crikey I found the lack of 
data and knowledge of what's happened to these young people quite extraordinary. Mm. For a clinic that's been running for more than 30 years mm. to not really know what's happened to them. I mean, we know that some people have been helped and there are some of them in the book, mm. but we also know that some people have been harmed and there are some of, examples of those mm. in the book. And we don't know the numbers of each because there hasn't been any follow-up. We don't even, you know, and, and, and I think there's a, there's a tendency to to solely focus on those that have been referred for puberty blockers. But actually, we don't know how those who who weren't, who how they fared either. You know, did their gender distress resolve itself? How did it resolve itself? What are they doing now? Mm. We, ju we just don't know. Mm. And that that's quite unbelievable, really. There isn't a sort of Gid Survivors Club on the internet where, <laughs> they're, all, they're, where they're all putting in their information. Well, there may well be. I mm. mean, you know, there's an example right at the beginning of the book, someone who was seen in the 1990s. Mm. Ellie and she found the service brilliant because it gave her a chance to talk and Great, she felt yeah. completely unique mm. and and actually she said that being given the time to talk and also being confronted with the reality of what transition might look mm. like made her just realize oh, do you know what it's not for me and mm. and I know that that's an option but I'm just going to go mm. away now and, and take some time mm. so we don't know how many are like her we don't know how many have physically, you know, medically transitioned and are really happy, mm. who have medically transitioned and are not happy, or who didn't transition and are happy or unhappy either. We just, we have no idea what the numbers are. Because some of them will be in their 40s then, yeah, if it yeah. was 30 years ago. Yeah, would have really thought, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's, they're a goldmine of, mm. of data, and like, surely. And, you know, and the thing is, is, something like that would have been absolutely a lifesaver for her, I guess, mm. back in those days yeah. because, you know, there would have been nothing else and and no one prepared to listen to her mm. no, exactly. story. And, and her parents didn't know, what, her parents were like, oh, we don't know what to do because no. she seems really unhappy. Yeah. But I think there's a related point is that they knew they didn't have any data mm. and Domenico De Cheli, who was the founder of the service, mm. he said in 2002, now it's time, you know, what I can't remember the exact quote, but, you know, now's the time we find out what's happened to these people. Yeah. But they never did. No. When there was a report into the service in, published in 2006, it was really thorough. And Dr. David Taylor, who wrote it, said, we need to collect data mm. on the outcomes mm. of these young people, both those who receive physical interventions and those, and they never did it. No. Why? Lack of money? I mean, I why? think lack of money was one, one point for sure. I mean, it's not a research-heavy trust either. Mm. Or um, did they just think, this is what we're doing now? We'll I don't, I don't do think it. it was as calculated as that. No. I mean, Dr. Taylor says, you know, yeah, it, it just wasn't seen as a priority, I don't no. think. The numbers were tiny. Mm. You know, and perhaps that's why NHS England didn't keep too close an eye on it either for quite a while. Because but, when but the at numbers some point, when the numbers started exploding, <sighs> mm. presumably somebody should have sat down and said, hang on a second, something's happening here. Mm. And no one did. No. Well, I mean, they had an external consultant go in in 2015 and say, you need to pause. Yeah. Not stop, you need to pause, think about who's allowed to come to the service, what yeah. service you can offer, and they didn't do it. I mean, there have been there have been these opportunities over the years to yeah. to change course. Yeah. And obviously that would have been difficult. And they didn't want to stop seeing young people because they felt these young people needed their help. Mm. But it sort of invites the question, if you can't provide the help that you want to, would you not be better off pausing and yeah. Re yeah. regrouping? Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I mean, there there were opportunities to change direction. I think that the the whole trans debate has come a really long way actually in the last few years, and I think it started from a sort of quite a a sort of 
you know, both sides were pretty sort of stuck in their opinion. And I think people have become much more open-minded on both sides. Uh, uh, certainly, I've I've seen, I mean, there are still some sort of stalwarts. Well, yes, I but, I, but I think it's sort of, it's developed. But I think back back then it must be, it might've been quite hard if you, particularly if you were feeling pressure from pressure Well, groups. and also, I mean, you know, there's, there's some testimony in there that Polly Carmichael and Bernadette Wren, who the director of JIDS and associate director gave to parliament in 2015 and the select committee are all basic not not unanimous but the majority were of the view you're too conservative why don't you lower the age at which these exactly. young people can have hormones yeah. why are you so slow so you know i, so, no, I absolutely I mean, have some sympathy for their yeah. position yeah. Yeah, you so know they were in they, a very difficult position they, they, they were getting they, it from all sides they, they perceived that the psychological harm would be less if you intervened before well, I I think what, puberty I think, or I think just also, at the point of puberty also i think that is when the issue really became very politicized yeah, yeah. and mm. people became you know were very concerned i mean like i said earlier sturgeon that's the back end of all of this but but a lot of politicians decided that they weren't going to look at this in, in any other way. They're just going to use it as a sort of political weapon mm. and that it was very expedient to be on that side of the debate and that it made it life easier for them. And they also have responsibility for this because it's because that's about a culture of intimidation and fear mm. where people, going back to this book, where clinicians you know, are worried about the speed at which things are happening and, and what's being done and, that, and yet they're t they can't really voice their concerns because they're worried about being cancelled mm. or but being they, they fired. Did, but I think, or, you, know, you know, there are a, a really sizable number that did voice their concerns mm. and over and over and over again to multiple people and, you know, nothing changed. And mm. that, that's why they sort of brought it out of the clinic in the end. Mm. But, I, but I think, you know, there are, to, to your point, Imogen, there, mm. are, there, there are consequences to not acting as well as acting. Mm. And, and that was acknowledged. You know, some of those who are most concerned make the point that that is a completely valid argument. Mm. And were everything else going well for some of these young people in their lives, it would certainly be a really strong argument. Mm. But actually, and they saw young people absolutely thrive on the blocker. But mm. for many, they weren't. And there was so much else going on you know, that's where the worry came in. Mm. And they and they actually, you know, they saw these young people's health, both mental and physical, deteriorate. Mm. So it, it was just more, it, it was more when you read, When you read the testimonies of people who are detransitioning or who mm. have detransitioned, mm. they often say, you know, I thought this was going to be the answer to all of my problems. Yeah. I thought I was going to be happy yeah. and yeah. successful and all these things. And, you know, it hasn't been. And actually, I'm still the same person that I was just on a lot of pills now. Yeah. And I think that's the great tragedy of it, because I think this politicization of the whole thing made it much harder for people to say, maybe it's not that you're trans, but you just have other issues that are yeah. making you unhappy yeah. and that transitioning may may be the answer but it may also not be the magic wand you know mm. often with these situations there's no silver bullet you know what if, just seems very unnuanced the whole thing doesn't it i think yeah i think was it what sort of safety nets should they have put in or is there some sort of safety net that we should have now that we should in order not to repeat the tavistock problem well, the Hannah's not really a clinician. But no, 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 had a traumatic childhood no, 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 no,
that needed to be processed and worked through before mm. transition could be considered in case it wasn't safe. It wasn't that, again, it was just slightly more nuanced than, yeah, of course. you know, oh, you're autistic, therefore you can't be trans. They weren't yeah. saying that at all. Or, you know, you... But these complex conditions change over time. You know? Yeah, and it was the idea that they couldn't give a d differential diagnosis, mm. to use the clinical term, mm. you know, it, because that became offensive. Exactly. And I think for a lot of people, the problem with this whole thing is that you're making irreversible changes to your body. And if you're doing that when you're in a non-permanent mental state, as it were, mm. so if you're or in a still, vulnerable situation, you're still yeah. processing trauma, mm. or you're very young, or things are going to change in your life, you know, you might end up not needing to make those changes mm. ultimately. And they're important changes because they affect the rest of your life. Mm. I mean, you know, if you transition, you have to take pills, you have to take hormones, you have to, you know. Yeah, and, and for some who it works, are perfectly happy to do that. But for yeah. those who it doesn't, it becomes exactly. even more of a problem. Exactly, you know, it's a size, uh, long term, these are big commitments that you're making. You know, your body yeah. is, is going to always try to fight to get back to whatever it was originally because that's how hormones work that's how mm. you know we all we all know i mean as menopausal women not you me and Imogen, <laughs> you know we know the power of of losing your i mean i certainly did you know when your hormones stop as a woman you change your personality changes everything about you changes physically mentally your mental health you know you become i became quite depressed you know all sorts of things happen hormones are very powerful things you know and and they're not to be messed with really and it sort of feels like maybe if you're, you know, 10, 11, 12, you don't really understand that because how can you? Because you're just a child. No, but these guys should. Exactly. The, the clinicians are the ones yeah, who have to guide should. you. Sorry. And that's why the responsibility is so huge because you're dealing with very young children. Mm. And they are so, um, you know, young children that age just want the adult world to tell them what to do. They look up, you know, they just absorb other people's, ideas so quickly and so easily mm. they're so easily influenced i think the majority were, were slightly older but yeah no i mm. mean that, that that's why people were worried i mean and now if you t if you go outside this particular story you know there are children much younger children who are being you know raised as a different sex to the one that they were i should say quote unquote assigned yeah. at birth you know and that that's that's that and that's that's their parents doing that to them you know, who's to know whether what they really want is what they really want. And I just think this is the sort of, I don't know, this feels like a big part of that story. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well done, it's Hannah, is what we're saying. It's very, very, well it's very done. good. Anyway, uh, you should all read it because it's, it's really, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And it's, and, and it is also a calm and the opposite of what we've come to expect from writing around this subject. Yes. Well, that's what I it, tried to it's do. It's very yes. analytical. It's very, yeah. you know, this, these are just the facts. I'm not making any judgment. Well, that is, that's that what is, I like about it. Well, thank you for saying that because that's exactly, you know, what I've really tried very hard to do because mm. I don't think it's the job of journalists to tell people what to think. You know, what I've tried to do is lay it out as fairly mm. and accurately as I can. Mm. And sometimes those stories are very distressing and sometimes they're really uplifting. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Hannah Barnes. Her book, Time to Think, The Inside Story of the Collapse of the Tavistock's Gender Service for Children, is published on the 23rd of February. You can read exclusive extracts from Hannah's book this weekend in Saturday's Daily Mail and in the Mail on Sunday. If you enjoy listening to The Half Hour, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus, me at Westminster Wag or Imogen at Imogen EJ. You have been listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine and Imogen Edwards-Jones. Thank you very much for listening. Listener.